Welcome to BOGSCAST, where faculty and staff at the BOG Center on Developmental Disabilities explore best practice, showcase success stories, and help listeners envision possibilities for innovation through interviews with state and national experts. Part of Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, the BOG Center is New Jersey's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and Leadership Education and Neurodevelopmental Disabilities Program. I'm Bethany Chase, Training and Consultation Specialist at the Bog Center on Developmental Disabilities. In this episode, we'll be discussing sexuality and developmental disabilities with Katherine McLaughlin. Katherine McLaughlin has a master's in education and is a certified sexuality educator under the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. She is also the founder, CEO, and lead trainer for Elevatus Training. As a national expert on sexuality and IDD, she trains professionals, parents, and individuals with disabilities to become sexual self-advocates and peer sexuality educators. She has spent her 25-plus-year career committed to elevating the status of all people, which is why the name of her growing company is Elevate Us Training. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So why don't we first just get started by having you tell us the story of um, your professional history. How did sexuality and developmental disabilities become your primary focus? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I really started my work uh, with Planned Parenthood of Northern New England and I was doing, I was working in the health center and then uh, presenting workshops on sexuality. And that was in my early twenties. And right around the beginning of that, career, I experienced a spinal cord injury and started using a wheelchair. So before I was able-bodied and walking around in the world, and then all of a sudden I was this wheelchair user. And I started to realize that people were treating me very differently um, based on that that change in my life. And so I, I just sort of became more interested in just disability awareness and some of the beliefs people have about people with disabilities just in general. Um, And and kind of at that same time, uh, special educators and developmental disability agencies were reaching out to me for help addressing sexuality. So it kind of all came together. And um, I think also in particular um, with developmental disability, there's a little more of an openness um, because um, there's some issues that kind of come up a lot around this. And so people are really looking for help, um, which is nice. Um, But it's also just kind of in this idea of, as we are as a culture, much more focused on problems versus being more positive about sexuality and healthy relationships. So um, I think because of those reasons, this, this topic really came to be my specialty. Why do you think in general this topic is so hard? You know, thinking about sexuality and specifically with intellectual and developmental disabilities, why is this topic so hard, particularly for people without disabilities to talk about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's lots of reasons. I think as a culture in general, we're not very good at talking about it, period, whether it's a person with a disability or not. So I think there's that. And then I think for a lot of people, those myths about um, people with disabilities around that they're not interested in being in a sexual relationship. Um, 
they're, or they're oversexed. That's all they can think about, you know, sort of all these myths. Um, if we talk about it, they'll do it. Um, we'll give them ideas. I, you know, so I think in general, people without disabilities might feel those same things like, ooh, yeah. And sort of treating them like children, I think yeah. is a big piece of it. So um, if you see someone as a child, then you're not going to talk about certain things. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. If you yeah. never say anything, they'll never know, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They won't ever have any of their own ideas. Yeah. No, um, no. Right. So I think that's part of it is like being, viewing um, people with disabilities as children and all these myths. But I think also um, there isn't a lot of representation in our culture, although that's changing now. Um, you know, seeing people as uh, sexual beings or in relationships, you know, we now have like love on the spectrum and, you know, different kinds of videos and things that are, are really bringing this up more and people are seeing it more. But I think before this time period, they're just, you know, you just, you know, there were just no images of people with disabilities. Yeah, not even examples or, you know, your day-to-day -day life, something to stop and make you question, oh, I, I I hadn't thought about that before, right? It's, yeah, exactly. People have more access to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I remember someone who used a wheelchair talking about, she happened to have a partner in a wheelchair and they would go out and people thought it was, you know, a field trip from the institution. You know okay. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Not that they were together, that they were a couple or, um, so I think, you know, the more we see people with disabilities as just like everyone else. Um, and some people are interested in sexual relationships, some aren't just like everybody else. And um, I think the more we do that, I think a lot of these myths will, you know, go away. And they really start, they, they have in a lot of ways too. I think also some folks um, haven't been able to uncouple um, perhaps that someone has some uh, challenges around social emotional development where they do need support, or if they have an intellectual disability where they do need support, they have a, a difficult time uncoupling that from the idea that someone's sexuality is delayed or that it is somehow that their hormones are somehow affected, right? right. Can you help just kind of dispel that or explain that a little bit if, if some of our listeners are scratching their heads? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the things that, um, well, one of the messages I like to get out there is that we want to think of people based on their biological age and not sort of how we see them, like you're saying, as having some kind of weakness and therefore younger in some way. Um, right. To really think about, okay, every 18-year-old, whether they have an intellectual developmental disability or not, need the same information. How we teach might be a little bit different. Um, but not what we're teaching. So I think that kind of helps people because oftentimes they'll think more about abil their ability as the age we want to teach to versus their biological age. Yeah, yeah you, you hear people say things um, like, oh, you, you know, you don't understand. She's got the emotional capacity of a you know, seven-year-old, like besides the fact that that's very ableist language in and of itself, sure. it's also just scientifically irrelevant right <laughs> right <laughs> to, exactly. yeah like yeah. to someone's yeah. like yeah it's like sexual development 
Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So if we think of people as seven-year-olds, then yeah, we're not going to talk about puberty with them. And um, so we have to get away from that idea and really look at biology or sometimes people call it chronological age. I like, you know, when I think about sexual education, I think that besides just the um, explanation of like, you know, biological explanation of what's going on, you know, with bodies, that sexuality education can do a lot of normalizing um, of feelings, of reactions, of emotions. Um, And when I think about people with disabilities who have not had access to this kind of education or information, um, they they not only lose the ability to have these these feelings normalized, they also don't have the language to describe it. And I'm I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what the risks are to a person who doesn't have these human responses, these these natural human reactions and longing. What what happens to someone who doesn't have these things normalized? You know, I think we can all relate to it on some level that, you know, we all receive messages like very, you know, shameful messages about sexuality and sex. And so I think there's a lot of unlearning that we all have to do. Um, but I think for people with disabilities, they're not even exposed necessarily to something else too, to say like, oh, we could think about this in a positive way. And so not even knowing that there's something to unlearn too. So um, I think that's part of it. And, and, and I think when you talk about consequences, I mean, there's so many um, negative consequences of the lack of information. And in particular, when you talked about language, you may have heard similar stories like this, but the, someone shared with me that a woman was talking about, uh, was saying that he keeps touching my purse and they thought it meant her you know, pocketbook or her purse. And um, so for a couple of weeks, they were putting her purse in the locker and doing all these things. And then all of a sudden realized that it was a slang word for her vulva. Um, And so just that, like that took three weeks for them to realize what was happening um, because she didn't have the language to describe it. Um, So just something like that, you know, things are gonna take longer maybe to discover. Um, And just that language and knowledge is powerful. so I think that that's a piece, uh, just sort of an example of not having um, the tools to sort of protect yourself or, or report something. But I think too, there's a you know as you know high rates of of sexual abuse, um, high rates of perpetrating abuse on another, um, higher rates of sex crimes, unplanned pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections. Uh, among this population and a lot of loneliness too. And I think mental health um, challenges when you're feeling really isolated. Um, So I think there's so much around sexuality and relationship education that's really about fitting in and being part of the society. Um, And if you don't understand social norms and rules, then people don't wanna be around you because they feel uncomfortable and then therefore they pull away from you. And so there's so much that's um, that you lose when you don't have this kind of education. Um, and then there's all the negative consequences as well. Yeah, and that becomes like a, a snowball effect, right? If you um, are behaving in such a way that you're making other people uncomfortable 
and people pull away, then you have less opportunity to continue to work on your people skills, which makes more people pull away, which gives you less opportunity. Right. And it's just, exactly. it just continues and continues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk a lot with, um, you know, job coaches and, um, and just general supports that, you know, I always joke, like if, if you say, well, they're not ready now, they're, they're not able to be in community now because of their behavior, then I guess they're not ready. They're not ready. We're going to pull them out of community, out of relationships, you know, but that's, that's like saying like, well, we should probably have them go to France to work on their Spanish, right? Like uh-huh. <laughs> it makes no sense, but you know, if people are making, um, you know, missteps around more social sexual issues, then it, the conse- the stakes are higher, right? The consequences are higher. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, these, some of these consequences, of course, are, um, are very serious. But and you mentioned just now rates of sexual assaults, um, sexual abuse. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, you may have heard the um, National Public Radio series um, that came out probably three years ago at this point maybe four. And um, they talked about the rates of sexual abuse. And from that, from that project, they said that people with intellectual developmental disabilities were seven times more likely to be abused than someone without. And if we look at females with intellectual developmental disabilities, they're 12 times more likely to be abused. So really high rates. And I think you also see that people who have more severe disabilities are definitely more vulnerable. They're depending on people for care. Um, Maybe they are non-speaking and don't don't have knowledge around what's a a healthy relationship versus a not, you know, an abusive relationship. So the, you mentioned the rates of sexual assault, sexual abuse, um, and then, you know, thinking about the fact that so many individuals lack access to education. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I always think how, how incredibly unfair th- that is on so many levels, because the lack of education just only exacerbates the problem. And, um, you know, it's not saying that this is the victim's responsibility to, um, to stop abuse from happening. But if someone doesn't have a context for what's normal behavior, what is normal private behavior? What's normal public behavior? You know, what my people who are taking care of my personal care needs, what do I set? I mean, it, we're just those kinds of complicated interactions between people with disabilities and a caregiver are so complex. And then we're asking folks who already sometimes struggle with social cues to just suddenly know what to do and what to say. Like, it seems so unfair. Do you ever, you know, hear feedback, you know, about, well, that's blaming, you know, that's people just shouldn't be doing that. Let's not blame the people, you know, let's not blame the individuals. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always start off with, you know, people with disabilities might be more um, vulnerable to abuse, but it doesn't mean that they're more at fault and that the reason abuse happens is because someone is abusing. Right. Um, but what can we do knowing that people might be more at risk? We know the statistics, we know um, lack of sexuality education is a you know, risk factor, but also, also just this idea of um, 
teaching someone to comply, that we want people with intellectual developmental disabilities to comply and do what they're supposed to do and please others. And that just, um, you know, if you talk about being unfair, that really sets people up. So how do we teach non-compliance? How do we teach it's your body and you get to decide what's right for you? Um, yeah. And it takes weeks and weeks for me um, when I'm working with a group of people and teaching for them to actually say no to something that I'm telling them they need to do. Um, so, I, you know, we use this name tag game that was developed by a Planned Parenthood in California. And each week you put your name tag you know, on the right or the left and you get to decide it's your body. And then, you know, a week or two in, I might say, I'm the teacher. I think you need to move it to the other side. And they immediately start to move it. And um, so, and I say, wait, hold on, you know, who gets to decide? Um, and, you know, they, they'll say things like, yeah, but we're always told we're supposed to listen to the teacher. I said, yes, you are. You're right. When you're at school and you, it's time to go to the cafeteria or you'd have to bring out your assignment or yes, but no one can touch your body. No one can touch your body unless you want them to. Um, so I think that's that little bit of difference. And also just in the classes, I'll say, and in this class, you get to decide whether you want to be here and whether you want to leave and where you want to put your name tag. Um, and it, it's so uh, exciting when they say no, you know, finally, but it takes a long time. And if we, if we started much younger with um, young people with disabilities and taught them about bodily autonomy, um, we wouldn't have adults struggling with saying no to an authority. Um, so we just, we don't do any of it. And, and a lot of this too is kind of general society things as well. I mean, you may have heard of like how we, we ask young kids to hug so-and-so goodbye and, yeah, you know, yeah. not, not even with a disability and yep, the kid yep, feels yep. uncomfortable, but they're not allowed to. And, uh, you know, they're not, they're not allowed to not do what they're told. And so we're teaching young kids in general, um, your feelings don't matter. You have to take care of Aunt Bethany, you know? Yes. Um, and I think, so that happens just in general. And then for, for children with disabilities, there's a lot, there's even less um, permission. And as we view them as young children, even when they're not, then we just keep, keep perpetuating that sort of lack of bodily autonomy or that right to bodily autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. And the, we use words, um, you know, like non-compliant, right. Um, or if someone immediately removes themselves from a situation, we characterize that as elopement, right. You know, uh -huh. we have all these, all these, uh, systems terms to describe people who aren't doing what we want them to do. And right. what, you know, um, and then somehow magically expect them to know that they have a right to refuse unwanted touch. It's right. It's, it's completely unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also just want to echo what you said about, you know, the people just complying that we're teaching people to comply with directives and, and not asking permission. Um, and I think that's something across the board, you know, when we, we speak with folks that work in day programs and you know, employment providers and residential and it's just asking them, you know, how many times have you specifically asked the person you're supporting for permission to touch them? 
Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't happen very often, right? If you're in a rush, we're like, oh, you need your help coat with the coat. Let's put your coat on, right? You start grabbing and you're like, oh, but we got to get out. We got places to go. And I, folks don't get, get the sense that they're allowed to refuse physical touch because we haven't taught them how, and we certainly don't model it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that, that's the piece if we could do that starting younger, mm -hmm. um, but we want people to act a certain way and behave a certain way. And we don't want people to be empowered. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. That's, that's going to make us late. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing that what you were just saying that just touched off for me thinking about some of the work that we do at Bog Center, um, I teach a course for job coaches on um, understanding how sexual harassment policies affect uh, individuals at their workplace, yeah. and both that individuals can be uh, perpetrators or victims of sexual harassment at the workplace. Um, and so we sort of talk through these strategies of you know how to be more proactive and again, how to assist individuals to know what's normal work behavior. Um, and, you know, I feel like a lot of what you're saying, whether it's teaching kids their proper anatomy, teaching children body autonomy, um, self-advocacy skills, it's, it's what we see in society, but with higher stakes and more a very vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, just so often as you mentioned, folks with, with disabilities have higher rates of sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment. Um, and thinking to the recent Me Too movement of how many women felt uncomfortable at work and nobody knows what to do or what to say. And we, ha we have individuals with disabilities in the same exact positions with even less resources and less information to advocate for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I've done some work with Project Search too, and um, they want they wanted a curriculum written because they felt like people were losing their jobs, not because they couldn't do the job, but because of the relationships. Um, so when we're when we're talking about being in a work site, um, sometimes it's not just it's not Project Search. They're doing all these great trainings and helping people become great employees. It's the place that the person is working. And these views of people with disabilities where they hug the person every morning. Yes, yes. And, you know, yes. like, and just really thinking just that, that idea of, do you do this with every employee every morning? Nope. That's right. Then you don't do it with this person too. So there's, yeah, just being thought of as a child all the time. And so we can do things like we do with children that just, it just doesn't make sense. And it sets them up. With all this work, I feel like sometimes it's easy to get, you know, a little outraged, right? And be like, like, why is everybody hugging this? Like, what haven't they ever met someone with a disability before? But it's right. always a reminder that as a society, we're we're just still learning, and for a lot of people, especially in employment settings, this might be the first time they've ever had a legitimate work relationship with someone with a disability before. And so they're doing what society is showing them they're supposed to do, which is exactly. going in for the hug. But I mean, it's right. you, you ask people like, do you go and hug and high five your coworkers every morning? And then they start to laugh. And I'm like, cause it's ridiculous. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. For someone, if they do struggle, especially if they struggle with understanding the social expectations of the workplace 
and everyone's coming in and touching them all the time and hugging them all the time. And um, it's, it is so unfair. It's sending such mixed messages and it puts people's jobs at risk. And Mm -hmm. again, do they feel like they can say, please don't touch me to their new boss? I mean, it's, there's a lot of problematic things that are happening at work and the stakes are particularly high when you're talking about someone's job and their livelihood. Absolutely. Um, So I once heard someone say that an individual that they were supporting in their day program uh, couldn't possibly be transgender and that this individual was wearing clothes of the quote opposite sex um, because this was attention seeking behavior. And so they were reaching out to us for an appropriate behavior plan. So mm-hmm. I had to breathe deeply, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you please talk about issues around sexual identity and gender identity and folks with disabilities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think there, there's a, you know, this myth there as well, that, um, if, a person with a disability is sexual, then they're heterosexual, and that they're cisgender, meaning their gender identity matches the gender they're assigned at birth, um, and that there is there's a variety of gender identities and sexual orientations in everyone. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I think I do some work with um, a woman in Massachusetts who's a trans woman with intellectual developmental disability. She does a lot of our, some of our trainings for us. And, um, and, you know, I think it's, again, it's kind of that um, treating like children. Uh, How would they know um, that they're transgender? You know, maybe it's true. And if, and what's important is to believe people, believe them when they say they're transgender and believe them when they say somebody's touching their vulva and believe like, there's this, we just don't believe them. We don't see them as credible um, humans. And so I, you know, I just think you have to believe. It doesn't even matter if it's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, just go with it and then it'll, uh, it'll unfold and things will get sorted out. Um, so I think that's, you know, there are many people with intellectual developmental disabilities that are LGBTQ. Um, so, and that's a fact and, um, yeah, yeah. I like the, that use of the word credible. It's like, we just don't think that people with disabilities are credible narrators of their own truth. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. We just don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what, how could they possibly know what that is or what that means or yeah. 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 And, you know, and I get that sort of on some level, like it's, it's kind of, wow, it's a pretty big deal. Right. And I know when I taught a group about pronouns and what are the different pronouns, and I had a brief moment where I thought, I don't know, this is too abstract. And and I just sort of taught what a pronoun was. And then they went around and said what their pronouns were and and totally got it, you know. And so I, you know, so I get that you can think that, but just I think we need to stop thinking that. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, yeah. And right, to start believing and going forward. Yeah. Um, So the last big topic that I wanted to chat about with you was around parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like uh, a lot of professionals are interested and feel ready to start talking about these topics and teaching classes and getting certified. The one question that I think is most terrifying (laughs) 
to a lot of these professionals is how do you manage the parent anxiety, the parent concerns, sometimes the parent outright refusal. Uh, talk to us about working with parents. Yeah. Well, I think first, um, you know, when I've done some trainings and and I've had staff people, you know, a little frustrated, maybe frustrated with parents and you know, you start to feel a little bit of sort of an adversarial relationship. Um, and I, I, so I ended up doing this, a fishbowl where I had the parents in the middle talking to each other and then staff listening. And I think that's important just to hear that perspective. Um, and I remember someone saying, the parent in this fishbowl saying, Every time I interview someone who's going to be a personal care attendant for my son, I think, are you the person that's going to abuse my child? Mm -hmm. um, and so living with that, right, living with that, um, parents have also said, uh, parents of children with very severe disabilities feel like it's not if my child will be abused, but when will my child be abused? Um, so living life like that, is, you know, I feel like we need to be empathetic. Absolutely. Yeah. To have that on your mind every time you interview a staff member, that's frightening, right? Um, so there's a lot of fear. And I think a lot of empathy is, is very helpful. And, um, and then I also try to explore with parents what, what worries them about certain things, you know, what worries you about your child learning about this or what worries you about your child being, a, being in a relationship. Because um, that helps me understand, you know, where it's coming from too. And, and um, you know, is it they're worried that they'll get in trouble because they, they'll do some sort of behavior or they will never leave their room because they've discovered their own body. You know, what, what is the worry? Um, so that I can be reassuring. Um, so I think, you know, that just sort of working on that, um, but also, um, you know, and, and, and many parents talk about when they heard their child had a disability, they felt like they had to do some grieving mm -hmm. and, there, and that there are different points where they have to do some grieving. And this is one of them as well. And um, many parents without, with kids without disabilities feel grieving when their child grows up. Um, and so I think just being sensitive and kind about their perspective and their position. And so I think that that helps. Um, and then sometimes, and I, you know, I don't like to focus on sexual abuse as the main, you know, message around sexuality. Um, but it is, it does speak to parents that you know, sexuality education is sexual abuse prevention. Um, yeah. And that there's these myths that parents have that sexuality education means you're going to teach my kid to have sex and we're going to give them all these ideas and then they're going to have sex with everyone. And that's just not the case. Um, so I think that's, that's, a, that's a piece of it too, is just um, making that connection to sexuality education as being protective, you know, having the language to say when something happens, having the bodily autonomy to speak up when someone wants to touch you and you don't want it. Um, so I think that making that connection for parents often is helpful. Yeah. So it's like using safety to kind of 
get them in the conversation and get them in the door. And then when they realize that, that it's going to um, give them a lot of help rather than cause harm, then the conversation continue. Yeah. That makes sense. Just to invite them in with conversations around safety first. Yeah. 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 And it's not, I don't feel like it's manipulating or being tricky. It's speaking what they want to know about, you know, they're, that's number one on their list. So let's talk about how sexuality education helps people be safer. Right. And I, I think it's, I, I really appreciate what you said too, about the grieving that, um, you know, milestones often kick up some stuff for all of us, that big milestones and linking that, you know, the young adult transitions difficult for the whole family. And, um, that's a, a really interesting perspective that the sexual development is another thing that can really kind of kick that stuff up. So it's good to be empathetic and compassionate. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, my last question for you um, is, um, what have you learned from the self-advocates that you teach with? Well, I know when I first started working with self-advocates and I said, oh, I'm going to create this curriculum and and they said, hold on, nothing about us without us, excuse me, you know, which was wonderful, <laughs> right? Like, oh, right. I don't know. <laughs> like, I knew that, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, nothing about us without us. I think many of them talk about wanting to be seen as human and having the same needs and desires and all these, you know, so, but also really wanting to be able to make mistakes as well. And um, they're often saying, let me make mistakes, uh, to their parents, to staff. Like I, that's how I learn and grow and become, you know, a, an adult in some ways too. So I think that's a lot of what I've learned. Um, and then I've also learned, you know, not only did they say nothing about us without us, but they have, you know, a unique perspective too. And so they reviewed all the lessons and I just remember I was using the term sexual behaviors and they said, we hate the word behavior. Oh yeah. Right. Of course. Inappropriate behavior. Right. Like those <laughs> words. So we changed it to sexual acts, you know, it didn't, it wasn't, you know, didn't have those negative feelings around it. So I think they have that unique perspective. Um, uh, and then they also said, oh yeah, we want to be one of the teachers of the curriculum as well. And so that was a really big aha moment for me that I had never really thought of them as part of the solution or being the leader in this because I was viewing them you know differently. So that was a really good, you know, I've learned a lot from them around right. Yes, you're adults. Yeah. You want to yes. be in charge, you want to lead this movement. Um and so the curriculum was designed to be team taught. Um, and as I work with more and more self-advocates, training them to be sexuality educators, I'm taking a much more of a backseat. You know, it used to be more sort of co-training. And now I'm like, this is yours. And I'm back here and I can, if you need me for anything kind of thing. And so, um, so that's been, been great. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, it's a good reminder that those of us in the field who think we've got it all figured out right? You know, every now and then it's a reminder of like, wait, nope, I'm doing the thing too. Thank you for the call out. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. It's a great reminder for all of us that we always have to stay aware no matter how, how much we think we're on the ball. Right. Right. Well, 
Thank you so much for your time. I know that this is a very hot topic um, and it's something that a lot of folks are always looking for more information on. So we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of BOGScast, a podcast by the BOG Center on Developmental Disabilities. A full transcript of this episode can be found at thebogcenter.podbean.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite streaming service to stay up to date with the newest episodes. To learn more about the Bog Center, visit our website at bogcenter.rwjms.ruckers.edu and follow us on Facebook at the Bog Center on Developmental Disabilities.